Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Seek Outside podcast. My name is Dennis and today Kevin and I are joined by Steve O'Pat, a flight nurse, writer, podcaster, and guru of the Hall Road. If you don't know what the Hall Road is, that's alright because we get into that, barefoot shoes, and how to season your firewood amongst other topics. This could be our best podcast of the year and we hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, Steve O'Pat. Are you from Minnesota, Steve? Yeah, I am. Southeast. I see, your, I see your Twinkies hat. Yeah. Always. Small town, small town pride, man. Um, well, yeah, we're, we're at in Minnesota. Chatfield, Minnesota is a small town about 20 miles south of Rochester. Yeah, so my wife is from Rochester. Huh. Uh, well, she's from Byron, actually. Um, yeah. Right next, to, right next to Rochester. And then I went to school in Winona and then lived, I lived in Winona for, I don't know, nine years almost, something like that. No kidding. Uh, that's interesting. That's good. That's good. Uh, I, what I, one of the things I like about that is that we are from the area of Minnesota that does not have a rich accent. So mm. nobody knows where we live, right? Sure. Nobody knows where we grew up. And then and then people ask because they're just not, you know, it's just the natural conversation thing. They're like, where are you from? And you're like, I'm from Minnesota. And they're like, Minnesota? Minnesota? And you're like, you jerk. <laughs> if I talked like that, you would have known where I was from. I, I have regional dialect. Our news anchors talk normal, man. I I only get it when I say bag. Mm. Uh, when I say bag, people are like, I could be in a conversation, blah, 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 blah. And I'll be like, uh, I used to work at REI and, and ring people up or something. I'd be like, would you like a bag? And they'd be like, oh, you're not from here. <laughs> like, like instantly they'd be like where are you from <laughs> i didn't know that i didn't know about the bag thing until very recent i just didn't realize it i thought it was, it was the, the long o got all the emphasis mm. the hoof does and the shoots yeah oh uh, well the canadians with the ute you know ute. instead of out yeah um, yeah yeah they're i mean they're they're like blunt with that one it's like they do it intentionally <laughs> <laughs> is that that's, so, that's so true i feel that way sometimes too i'm like did you really was it was doesn't out, even apply out? there yeah. down the tooth nah that's not a thing it's north and south <laughs> well, i i uh, interacted with a, a nurse practitioner the other day about a patient and I, I told her something about her patient having covid i don't know what it was and she's like oh shoot and, and later, as I was trying to hang up, she's like, so I, I see your area code on your phone. Are you from Minnesota? And I said, yeah. And you're from Minnesota, too, because you just said, oh, shoots. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, you caught that, huh? Just just hit record, Dennis. Let's get yeah, started. no, we're, we're going. We're, we're getting we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll intro this at some point. It's not a, not a big deal. Okay. Um, yeah, my, my, my wife's family is all from Bemidji. Oh boy! So, so they get a little, they get a little bit a little bit worse than than southern Minnesota, but so the the thing. All right, this gets worse. The story gets worse. I went to school in Fargo. I'm a, a Bison alum, mm-hmm. and like when I tell people that, like I also lived nine years in Fargo, and everybody once again goes, 
Orgo. <laughs> they're so funny. God, if I talk like that, you would know where I was from. And for the record, only the opening scene is filmed in Fargo. Everything else is Bemidji mm -hmm. from the movie Fargo. And yeah, you will find some places up there that are pretty dang proud of their Polish heritage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very much so. Very much so. <laughs> uh, so Bemidji via Byron and your uh, Winona via where? Uh, Bloomer, Wisconsin. So uh, north of Eau Claire a little bit. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I'm Colorado I'm via Central Wisconsin. So, yeah, and Kevin's. Uh, uh, why am I blanking on the name? What? Yeah, where uh, in Wisconsin, Kevin? Um, south of Stevens Point, um, Plainfield, Plainfield. Town. It was famous for a serial killer named Ed Gein, who also was the basis of Silence of the Lambs. He was kind of the model for that. He was also the model for a couple other horror movies. Um, and ironically, um, probably getting a little <clears throat> too close to comfort here. Um, he used to go visit my grandmother all the time and then he would leave before my grandfather got home. And then I used to remember stories about him. Right. And all that, you know, um, he was pretty famous serial killer. Um, anyway, I silence of the lambs came out, saw the movie. I was reading something that said it was loosely based on Ed Gein. And so I was like, what decided to go and look at, um, look for a book, right? And I went, got this book, started reading it. And they talked about the first grave that he dug up. And it was my great aunt. <laughs> I was like, really? whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, Weird. He made like he he I mean they literally busted him. Um because he went to the hardware store during hunting season. Um the lady had, he put his name, I think, in a raffle or something, and it was the last name in the raffle, but the lady who was working the hardware store disappeared. They went to his house, they found her like basically strung up, you know, and her heart was in like a skillet yeah, on the stove. Um, he had furniture that he made. They thought he was trying to make like a female bodysuit and stuff. Um, he had, you know, there was there was part of what is it, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the weird yeah. mama stuff. There was mm -hmm. part of that and that kind of stuff in um, Silence of the Lambs. There were some other horror movies, I guess, that borrowed parts. Uh, that was a bad reference. That borrowed some of the things that he did. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Careful. Yeah. I'm very one of the things that um, those who know me best know about me is I'm very punny. So <laughs> when you hit borrowed parts, it 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 like activates the blood starts flowing to the part of brain, uh, <laughs> wanting to think of uh, cannibal puns, and I, I think I'll just have to say maybe on another episode. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Now this now to kind of purpose of this podcast isn't an examination of dialect in um, in the upper Midwest or a weird discussion of serial murderers from the 50s or 60s, right? Serial killers that may or may not have been in your home at one time. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. And dug up relatives, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 
But this is going to segue into the purpose of our podcast, which is probably more about hunting. Um, because he also, apparently, um, he gave people venison quite often uh, because no one thought he was this serial killer, right? And in a small town, like 600 people, 500 people, something like that. Um, but then they found out that he never apparently hunted. So, and then obviously he was a cannibal. So it's kind of like, well, what was he giving people, right? Oh, interesting. <laughs> this just in human tastes like deer. Yeah, I don't know. Especially when, probably especially in Wisconsin. They eat like... Is it like the same thing? Yeah. Sweet corn. <laughs> Tasty whitetail there. Wow, I suddenly just discovered I have so much more to learn. Yeah, yeah. Ed Gein, everybody go look that up real quick. Uh, pause. Go read about Ed Gein. Right, right, exactly. Uh, there, there's some there's some info out on him, and I don't know. It, it's not flattering for small central towns in Wisconsin. So No, but I mean, I think the nice thing about this is uh, when you choose a, a podcast, uh, let's call it genre or topic, you really got to decide, you know, what do you want to focalize on or how to make it very broad to you, appeal to a large audience. And, and the like, there are a lot of people who really like to just check out and dig into the like mystery and the crime and the serial killer podcast series. So if you can like, you know, keyword that in this one, <laughs> we're really reaching a large audience here, you know, buy seek outside tents, buy seek outside tents. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's clever. That's clever. Be, be weary of anyone that offers you venison and buy seek outside tents. Yeah. yeah, well, exactly. just make sure they have a hunting license before you get it. Right, you know? right. Right. Ask them about their hunting experience, right? Like, sweet, what kind of gun did you get this with? You know, you don't want to hear, like, oh, I, with a knife. <laughs> right, right. I, <laughs> I found it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like to do a. Like, if, if you ever get a, somebody calling you and you don't know who it is, I like to play the game of like, Hey, send me a picture of what you're doing right now, or send me your picture so I can add it to your contact information so I can like figure out who it is. So this might be one of those things where like, hey, I'm gonna post on Instagram that I'm eating venison right now. Can you send me a picture of you with it so I can say where it came from? And then you could just be more <laughs> sure that it's a sure. legit source. Sure. It's a good reason to harvest your own meat, not rely on the kindness of um, neighbors. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. So, you think GMO is bad? Try living with uh... a. <laughs> well, whatever. <laughs> so, um, a little clarity here. Um, we we sound like we've known each other for quite a while and thrown back a few, but I have not had a drink yet today, and I've known Steve probably for all of about an hour so far. We had a yeah. bit of a conversation and we said, hey, why don't we do a podcast? What the hell? So here we are. Uh, <laughs> Steve has his own podcast. You want to go and tell us a little bit about yourself, Steve? Yeah, I can do that. My, my podcast is called Alaskan Odysseys. I am a, I'm a Minnesota transplant that, that felt, that knew that Alaska, that big, grand places with vast amounts of public land as far as you could walk, were where I needed to be, where 
choose your own adventure and that that's allowed and and for any of you guys who grew up in the midwest you know what it's you know what it's like when you're confined to parcels uh, i mean everything from i mean as far as i know from the the appalachian trail to the to the rockies is is sectioned off into one mile by one mile grids and and you just fly when you fly over it even if you're on a layover in Minneapolis, just like look down, you see the world's gridded off into divisions of 640 acres, one mile by one mile. So I grew up on, on a 20 acre plus a 10 acre plus a 40 plus an 80. And when the animals got off of those parcels, that's where the good time ended. And I just, that didn't work for me. <laughs> so I went to Alaska, and Alaskan Odyssey is a, is a journey story. It's, it's it's just ultimately, I think, is this helping telling my stories about Alaska and getting other people on with their stories about Alaska and teaching people that like there's a journey to be had to get you to where you need to be, where your where your confinement ends and your liberty begins. So that that's kind of. I don't know. That's the poetic description of Alaskan Odysseys. It's just Alaskan adventure and, and mentoring, getting people outside and making experiences for them that stick. So they want to be, they experience the, the, the nurturing that, that the outdoors can do. Agreed. <clears throat> so how many cords of wood you need to prepare for this winter? Oh God. Oh shoot. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oofta, that's a big one um, I, uh, I splitting wood is on my list of things to do this week yeah I, I think last year I got by on four um, it's funny because I didn't know this growing up in Midwest but there are there is a whole spectrum of wood stoves and everybody in in Fairbanks especially knows about the Blaze King, the the catalytic wood stove that reburns its gases, so it's super efficient. And uh, I've got one in this yurt that's just a big old cast iron hunk. And let me tell you, it's a wood eater. It is a chewer. So, um, also in that, what you don't realize when you live in the Midwest, really is that there really are different grades of wood. Mm. And uh, the best, sorry, substitute for hardwood that we have in Fairbanks is birch. And it takes some tender loving to huh. even make it good wood. <laughs> and it, I was home this summer and splitting. I sunk a mall into some ash and was just like, God dang, it feels good to be back in the land where, where wood fights back <laughs> huh. that's that's interesting so there's uh just uh yeah for anyone who hasn't burned anything birch is not i mean birch is like paper right it's like pulp pulp yeah it, if you season it correctly it 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 has a certain a decent amount of btus mm -hmm. but if you leave it if you don't split it and you leave it in the husk it'll literally rot inside of the birch bark husk and mm -hmm. is worthless mm -hmm. But, but but on the spectrum of things, like it falls way below ash, oak, walnut, elm, cherry. Then you get to birch, which is like the best thing we have here in Alaska. So you got to split a lot of wood up here. I hmm. would think I would think that those slow growing um, black spruce would be would be similar to a hardwood hardwood. 
just because they grow so slowly? That's a good question. I it's my understanding that it, a seasoned birch still has the highest BTU for boreal forest wood. Um, people like the black spruce. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the birch. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that directly. But um, if you want, if you want to think about this, a really intriguing book for just pure trivia knowledge. And then, and I'm not talking about like if this was uh, who wants to be a millionaire. Like this is a great topic because Regis Philbin just died this week. So mm -hmm. like in tribute to Regis Philbin, let's talk about who wants to be a millionaire. This subject is not the zero to eight thousand dollar questions this is like the hundred two hundred three hundred million dollar questions of like what wood has the highest btus when properly seasoned but a really great book is called norwegian wood and mm -hmm. it it is uh it just details all the like a guy from scandinavia writes the book about you know life in life in Norway and Sweden and is no di really no different than life in Alaska and it's boreal forest birch and, and black spruce and white spruce and he divulges how to season it what the difference is when it isn't seasoned and how to stack it and how to the different ways that people stack it and the different BTUs of different wood it's just really neat knowledge that you'll never use unless you're on who wants to be a millionaire so i have to tell you this story about this customer that was sending in requests to us hope he doesn't okay. listen to our podcast um because he was wondering like how much burn time he would get if he used the finest swedish wood for like a month and he kept asking trying to get it in a really precise way and we were like, well, we don't know what size tent, what temperatures you're talking. And he was like, well, I'm using the finest Swedish wood. Um, how much burn time will I get? And we're like, we don't know. You know, you can't even send us finest Swedish wood and have us test it because we're under a fire ban at this moment. So. <laughs> yeah. How long did you season it? What method did you use to stack it? right like, there's so, so many variables here yeah so so explain seasoning for me like like we're not sprinkling salt on it right like what do you mean by season uh it's it's the process of getting the moisture out of it and there's kind of two kinds of moisture there's the moisture that's actually in the cell of the wood that's all you know stacked next together to make a log and then different from that is the moisture that like the wood soaks up between those cells when it gets wet. So if, if it rains on it, it'll soak up wood. But seasoning is this process of, of drying the wood out of the cells and they shrink, which is why you see checking. And checking is when you look at the end of a log that's well seasoned, you will see cracks. You'll see cracks in it mm. through the different grains and stuff. So anybody who split wood knows, like if you're swinging mm. a ball, you try to hit them all right on one of those checks. That's yeah. where the cells have separated because they've shrunk and, and that's where it'll cleave the best. So seasoning is this process of getting like the, the natural moisture out of the wood. And it's remarkable because like there's there's poor science, but there's people's like home science applied to this. Like when do you when is it best to cut a wood? 
and and it that even gets down to like do you want it on a waxing moon or a waning moon oh no way because because people believe and especially if you look into like bamboo structures and bamboo building um dedicated bamboo artists will only harvest the wood on a waning moon because they believe the tree is is dropping its moisture content and it takes it up as the moon is getting more full it's taking in water and as the moon is getting less full it's dropping water and so it has less moisture in it on a waning moon uh which makes it more structurally sound and this book this norwegian wood wood book goes into this and like doesn't the research some swedish grad student doesn't really prove that it makes much of a difference but it might um Mm. So yeah, when you live in the north, you you get really obsessed with your wood. Like <laughs> you, you ever um, you ever take the ball and just whack it into some cottonwood? Yes, cottonwood is awful. Yeah, so it is. It is, especially when it's wet. Well, because it gets all stringy, and then burning it, at least the cottonwood around here, it's also very burns very dirty. So you have to clean out your uh, fire your wood stove often yeah it produces a one of it's the largest amount of ash uh mm-hmm. if you look in this like at the bottom of the spectrum of of wood and its btus is cottonwood but now here's an interesting mm-hmm. fact mm-hmm. because you guys have a wood stove business all wood gives off the same btus per pound yep okay all wood gives out the same British thermal units, it generates the same amount of heat per pound. It's just that cottonwood and birch are less dense than oak mm-hmm. ash. And they also they also are far more like if you just go out and saw one down that's living, they also have a lot higher water moisture content right. in them. Like so I think aspen, um, what did I, like I, I've harvested aspen quite a few times. Because it's plentiful around here, a lot of them fall over in the winter and stuff. Um, but it's like four thousand plus pounds per quart of wet aspen. So going out and getting a quart of wet aspen, that's like some serious lifting. Versus getting like white pine, which I'm not really that big of a fan of either. But there's a lot of dead white pine around um, that is standing dead. It's relatively dry. It's relatively light and. I think it weighs more like twelve or fifteen hundred pounds per per cord, but like oak will have is much denser. It absorbs much less water as well, so it, it weighs say more than aspen when dry, just because it's far denser. But it weighs less than aspen when wet because it can't absorb as much water. Yeah, better through science, right? Like. <laughs> I love it. I mean, very interestingly, is I, I'm sitting in this yurt right now with this big cast iron clunk three feet away from me, and I have learned to accumulate a huge pile of aspen that I burn from like April through September because I'm, I'm rationing my seasoned birch for the winter. And mm. when I just want a fire to like have the fire to cook on, like, I burn the aspen, and and once these people told me like it it burns the same amount of heat per pound, it just since it's less dense, you're gonna get more ash per 
you know, unit of heat. I'm like, oh, that's fine. Like, I can get rid of the ash. That's easy. I just want the fire. It takes me like five minutes to clean out the wood stove and dump the ash. Like, that's not that big of a deal. So, so I, I, I am a wood snood now. Like, <laughs> back to the dialect. Um, so, um, what do you got? Twenty-one hours of daylight going on up there now, or twenty hours? Yeah, yeah. It, it's very light. It's uh it's uh last night around midnight was the point that i could i was inside my tent or inside my yurt it was cloudy enough that at midnight at about 11 21 is when i looked at the clock because i could no longer read the words on the magazine in natural light 11 21 p.m mm. and that at uh oh light was cracking like it Five was the point that I pulled the blanket over my head. By six thirty, I was like, "Am I sleeping or just laying here?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> Do I just need to get up. I don't know. Ugh. So we got started. We got started about introduced about an hour or so ago um, through Heather. Um, she facilitated the introduction. We got to talking about tents, courthouses, the Arctic caribou hunting, all sorts of good stuff. Yeah. So how hard is it to get your boat up to the put-in on the SAG? And we probably should clarify that because Dennis is a total newbie. Yeah, the, yeah. The SAG um, is a river. How is yeah. that actually pronounced? Sim similar to the wood conversation, we got to get some terminology. Mm-hmm. Uh, spelled out here. So, Dennis, we were we were talking about doing a caribou hunt on the Hall Road in northern Alaska, which uh, it's interesting. I didn't know about it before I moved here, but it's um, I'm learning now. It's it's really one of Alaska's. I called it iconic once, but I don't think it's iconic. I the guys from Game and Fish in a podcast I did with them on my show, they're like, I wouldn't say it's iconic, but it's definitely one of its most like popular or attainable hunts so it's 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 popular because it's attainable so a lot of a lot of people do it they just like i just want to hunt alaska and it's just this hunt that 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 can be done even this year in the time of covid like you can come up here and do this hunt there's well, no there's no teeny reasons why you can't oh I'll, I'll start giving you reasons why you can't it's hard to drive your car up there right you now. You can't drive it's the camera, but you can still rent vehicles here and you can still fly here. Yeah, it's difficult to rent a vehicle that they want will allow you to take it on the whole road, though. Those are some I have answers to those. Oh those, those are real problems. And I, I, I told you earlier, like I really want to I I just feel this great opportunity to become like the knower of all things Hall Road. <laughs> You're also the knower. You're also the knower of all things Norwegian wood. So, so you got two right now. But I have a good memory, and I can just like recite facts. Regarding we're just gonna, we're going to put a little hyphen after your thing on the podcast. It's going to say Stephen Opat, Guru, Guru. Yep, Guru. All right, that's fine. I, I, I'm kind of flattered by that. Like, it's okay to get a nickname, but if you try to give yourself one, you're you're begging to be teased. So. You want to nickname me the guru? That's cool. 
So how do I get how where do I get a vehicle that's going to go up the haul road and how much is it going to cost me? Or do I just have to lie and tell people I'm not using it on the haul road? And God, you know, I'm like, hey, you got a couple extra spare tires by chance? Uh, okay, so spare tires, lying, haul road. Got a question, Dennis? I did, I kind of I want to I want to define the haul road before we get into why you may or may not be able to take your rental car down this thing, right? Like, oh, I'm, sure. I'm 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 picturing it rugged, but like, can we just define the haul road and like what's what's the haul road? The haul road. Okay, so. Um, the haul road is the road that services the Alaskan oil fields. The Alaskan oil fields are on the Arctic Ocean, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, Anwar. You've heard most people have heard of this. We know about the Great Ala the Trans Alaska Pipeline, which ended in Valdez, which filled up a boat, the Exxon Valdez, which crashed into a reef because the captain may or may not have been drinking and asleep, like. We know about all this, so but you know that there's this huge oil field in Alaska that basically, like, the oil flowed to the surface in a place that people didn't even friggin' live. It's the Arctic. I mean, you're two a mile. I don't know, maybe 150 miles above the Arctic Circle. And so, in the 1970s, they said, like, we're gonna exploit this oil. Alaska is gonna use it to run their their state. And so, in order to get the supplies north. We need to build a road. So the road started moving north from Fairbanks as the pipeline was, was you know, coming, you know, being built from the north and built from the south. So there's 500 miles of road that really just connects Fairbanks, which is used to be the end of the road because of gold, to the oil field. And there's there ain't nothing between it. <laughs> there's nothing. It, there's no town that was like, oh, this is great. Suddenly we have road access. <laughs> like, no, there's, there's nothing. Nothing. It's just the last frontier. It is the Oregon Trail of, uh, like, that's why Alaska is the last frontier. It is just this Oregon Trail. Like, you just drive across vast amounts of tundra or like taiga. Like, it's, first it's boreal forest, then it's taiga, then it's just tundra. And, um, the haul road is the road that the semis use to bring supplies north. And those supplies are anything from just bringing the food north that the cooks use to serve the people who clean the buildings that house the engineers. So, like, as long as there's oil running through that pipeline, there have to be people up north to take care of it. There have to be people in the pump stations that keep it pumping south. And as long as you keep running your car, and buying your food and plastic, like that oil will keep flowing south. It's already running. They might not be drilling more wells, but like it's running. They got to keep it running. They got to keep the service. So the haul road gets the supplies up. Well, they've made that haul road available for us as outdoorsmen. Um, and on either side of that, to make sure that that the supplies can keep going north and there's not major accidents from tourism and knuckle-dragging idiots, they made a corridor five miles on either side of it where there's no motors and no rifle hunting. And that protects the state's most valuable resource. It also protects the um, indigenous people. It protects the indigenous people. They, 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 were very, they were very worried about the impacts of white people with unfettered access to hunting up there. Yeah, and the most, I think, 
this is going to make me sound like a jerk. Like, I respect the people. But it's also, for me, in my values, like, it's number two to the land. The land has always been here before the people. And let's face it. We all know this. Like, we're not, none of us are special. We know this. Like, if people have unfettered access, they're going to take four-wheelers across the land to get to where they want to go and chase these animals because it's way easier than walking. And the tundra cannot recover from four-wheeler access. People will leave tracks across it that will be seen for a millennium because it there's 60 days of growing up there. Like It just can't recover. So that non-motorized strip protects the land so that it, it retains its ability to be wild land and, to, and, and house animals that we can enjoy. So that's, that's the haul road. Now, it has a bad reputation as being a complete tire-eating, strut-wrecking, car-destroying bastard. But truth be told, these semis run 365 days a year and are bringing vital supplies and some huge equipment like that road is well maintained so and it's not like the north dakota scoria that i'm familiar with that the shale the sharp shredding shale that shreds tires it's it's pea gravel and granite that's been ground down so it, it's really not as bad on tires as people think it is there's so, a fair amount of there's a fair amount of potholes and stuff though. There are a lot of potholes. Hmm. Very true. There are a lot of potholes, but they, they might beat your car up. But I just in general, I don't see that shredded tires are the norm. So but that being said, it gets to your question of like how do you get a vehicle to go up it? Um yeah, there's a lot of company rental car companies, Hertz, Avis, those normal ones, like they don't want their cars going up there because it's really hard on them. But there are some local providers like Alaska Auto Rental and U-Haul that will let you rent a vehicle and take it up there. So you so, can find those companies and, and get a vehicle that will service your needs. So I've rented U-Haul vans twice on Alaska trips mm -hmm. for fishing. Um, although the last time I rented a U-Haul van, the guy at... Um, the U-Haul in Anchorage just gave me a, a bunch of crap. Um, hope Heather doesn't listen to this because he insisted that I needed to have an Anchorage address from where I was moving. So I looked up Heather's address and uh, <laughs> gave it to him. That's funny. That's funny. That's savvy, man. That's savvy. So, yeah. That, but he would not rent me the vehicle without that. And, um, but the, but the U-Haul vans make an excellent fishing rig. You know, oh, yeah. you, can keep, you can keep your fly rod totally intact because you got enough room back there. You can sleep in the back. I've seen some people that have used them and then went to like a thrift store and got like an old hide bed thrown it in the back, you know, and all of a sudden you got a, you have a budget camper van. Totally. It is an absolute budget camper van. And, uh, you know, another thing people like is on on the haul road, if you're doing a, a, a 10 day trip, it's like you don't want to be deterred from harvesting an animal on day one. So you got to figure out how to handle your meat for the duration of the trip. It's nice to have something you can put it in that keeps bears out of it while you might be in there getting the rest of your animals or something. Um, 
Well, I, I've got all kinds of ideas. If this is what you want to talk about, I mean, clear your schedule. Let's go nuts. But, uh... <laughs> part, one, part, part one is dialect and um, – Dialect the Norwegian wood. And, uh, and serial killers. And serial, uh, yeah. 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 Part two is uh, the Hall Road. So, okay. So you there's a couple places that will rent you a car. Um, how pricey are they? Because, like, renting a car from Hertz and those guys during busy season, 150 bucks a day. Yeah. I don't know. Let's say 100 to 200 bucks a day. Um, and But here's the benefit is, if you do a fly-in hunt, you're locked in at starting point for any hunt in Alaska. God, bargain would be 2,500 bucks a person, but probably three to 3,500 bucks a person. A person. Mm -hmm. Now, when you rent a car and you split it between as many people that are coming, you you'll rent that truck for less than what one person would rent to 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 fly in. So it's still a budget way to do it. Like whatever it is, that's what it is. It might be two hundred bucks a day, but whatever. It facilitates a hunt that you'll that can't even fathom. And you can take showers in Coldfoot and get the all-you-can-eat buffet there. That's true. That's your first place to get it. Just a beer. On your way out, on our way out, um, the guy I was with, he like, we went in there, we ate all we could at the all-you-can-eat buffet. And then he started stuffing sausages in his pockets and all sorts of stuff. You know, well, luckily he wasn't going to run into any bears in his Ford Bronco. So, yeah, I mean, the, the hard part to... Actually, this is pretty, it's a pretty easy thing to say. It's not a hard part. It just sucks to accept it. Is that it, it's going to cost money. And then instead of, like, if I, if I think of being a college kid who facilitated Western hunts in, in North Dakota and Montana and in South Dakota, and I could hunt all I wanted. Kevin, you talked about this. Like, your, your caribou hunt got canceled. But you, you just pivoted, and you're just hunting everything you can in Colorado. And, and my response was like, good God, how do you have that much time? Like, that's, that's a lot of tags. Like, we're going to need a bigger boat, right? You start we're a company, and boat. then you get Dennis to work. Mm -hmm. uh, to, be, to be like mini-me or whatever. So. Gotcha. Well, uh, yeah, like your Alaska hunt's going to be no different. But instead of being like – Instead of Washington being on the quarter, he's on the dollar, right? <laughs> and instead of Lincoln being on the on the penny, he's on the five dollar bill. Like instead of nickel and dimed, you're gonna get Grant and Benjamin. But but like you just do it because it's worth it. Oh, it's an incredible experience. It's an incredible experience. And, and like, deep down that god dang like i just spent the whole day yesterday shopping to get ready for this hunting season and like the amount of times that i just shelled out 50 bucks to get what i needed it happened 10 times yesterday but like by the end of by this time next year am i gonna say like i'm broke because of all the money i spent to get ready for no like it's worth it this is what we do this is why we work like so you just budget, have a plan, use your resources so that you don't waste money. Don't spend it frivolously, you know, be, be discerted with it, but like do it because it's worth it. That's well, why you. With, with COVID, 
I think that um, if people are still employed, a lot of them have more money because they aren't going out to eat. They aren't going to the movies in the same way that they were before. You know, they're doing yeah. a lot more cooking at home and being like, well, I didn't realize I had this much money. But when I had kids in dance class and was um, going out to eat five times a week, all of a sudden I didn't think I had any money. So, yeah. that, so how does like, we haven't talked a whole lot about COVID. Has COVID affected, affected the tourists up in Alaska quite a bit or not that much? No, totally. It's, it's actually, it's, it's bad. It's, it's pretty sad. Uh, we talked about oil being the number one source of income for Alaska. You know, commercial fishing is somewhere up there. It's like number two or three. And that's had its big problems because they can't, they can't get canneries. They can't consolidate people to work in a cannery to process the fish. So that they've had to troubleshoot that. And some people have just said, we're, uh, whatever, we're going to do it. We'll figure it out. Um, but the hard part is cruise ships. There, I mean, an Alaskan cruise is it is so available. So many people have done it because there are so many of them, and it's awesome. It's cool. It's a beautiful experience. But like those cruise ships ain't running, and so it's it's hard. As I'm sure we've all experienced, when you know somebody that has a entity, a small business, and you look out and see that there's just not the people in the state this time of year that there normally are. Like you feel this pain for your friends who, you know, are hurting. Uh, but like, I mean, I'm a nurse, so like I'm able to keep working. I'm not saying that braggingly. I'm just saying like, I really appreciate the fact that I didn't know that there was going to be this COVID pandemic when I decided to be a nurse, but it just so happened. I chose a field that was considered to be a vital worker. Right. You didn't know when you started seek outside that it was going to be recession or, uh, you know, pandemic proof. But here you are at seek outside saying like, we can't keep up because now that COVID's hit, God, everybody is camping. Great. Right. <laughs> awesome. So, but, but that doesn't mean that you don't feel really bad for your friends who followed their passion and are doing what they want to do and it's just not recession or pandemic proof and you know their businesses are really hurting and so like though it's fun to have no traffic in downtown anchorage or no competition for your spots because there's no tourists it hurts because you know that there are a lot of businesses that are really hurting here which is why i feel this call to tell people like you can still come it's it, the, we can work through it. We can work through the obstacles. You can get COVID tests. You can isolate. You can rent a car so you're not really staying in a bus full of people or a ship full of people. You can just be you and your travel partner. Like, Do it because our businesses are still open and they would love to still do what they do, which is to serve you this amazing Alaskan experience. be a good year to go visit Denali. It'd be a great year. This podcast yeah. brought to you by Denali National Park. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I mean, here's this, this is funny. The the what I'm about to express are not the uh, views and opinions of Seek Outside Incorporated. They're solely the views and opinions of Steve Opat <laughs> and they, whatever. <laughs> but like, I I have friends coming up that are going to do this caribou hunt, and they are very concerned about how to 
how to behave uh, COVID compliant. Like being, like being respectful to the local community. Yes, and following yeah. the Alaska mandates, health mandates, and stuff like that. Right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, there's though though he's never really been like presented as an image to the world. We all have this fear of like the COVID compliance boogeyman. Like this this freaking guy that like knocks on your door that says like hey we got a report that a Steve Opat is quarantining here for 14 days I'm gonna need to see your receipts credit card statements and anything that might prove otherwise like that guy doesn't exist he is just this like avatar that the fear mongers have put out there just to keep people from being reckless so like you can come up here and behave well and there's you're not gonna get chased down by the COVID boogeyman and put in some foreign prison. It's they're gonna go, they're, they're going to sentence you to Lake Testamina in uh, Kenai. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. Are brown bears all over the place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like worst case scenario, they make you walk through a whole bunch of Alder and Devils Club. Like it sounds like a great day. Everybody who's hunting is doing that anyways. So, so like I said, I, I can't say that that's official recommendation, but I want people to know that, like, if you are a smart person and act appropriately and obey traffic and normal laws as you normally do, there's no reason why you can't come here, wear your mask, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and have a freaking great time. Like, you're not here to be swallowed by a mass of people. You're to be swallowed by the last frontier. It's a great time to get it. Less competition for it. Yeah. Right. So, so let's go on with your caribou hunt. You're going up the sag. Yeah. Right. Which, how? What's the official pronunciation of that? You tell me. I'll send you a box of cookies. I don't know. I think it's the Saganic Yeah. What is that? It. Uh. It, no. Uh, it's the best I can sound it out is this the so this is terminology. There's a river up there that has a um, Inupiat Eskimo name, which sounds articulates to about the Sagnat Yorick. But everyone just calls it the Sag and the Sag River parallels the Hall Road, which we've discussed. And uh, it runs from, let's just say, Adigan Pass. And then parallels the road until it gets to the the town of Dead Horse or Prudhoe Bay, east side of the road and the west side of the road. And remember, there's five miles on either side that you gotta hike across to uh, to get. If you want to rifle hunt, you have to hike across five miles of tundra. Um, what I do, what I'm learning in, in my quest to know, I'll become the guru. The guru road, is is to find all ways to access it. So I I've hiked it. And I know places to hike it that make it way more friendly to hike it. And I've pack rafted it. And I know places to hike in to make it way more friendly to pack raft. Uh, and now I'm playing around with jet boats to make it way more friendly to get to where you can just caribou hunt and have this backcountry wild experience. So it becomes more of the available experience and brings it to the iconic Alaskan experience. That's that's kind of my goal. So I'm I'm pioneering a new area of land on the Lupine River this year to see if we can get the boats up there. And I'm I'm happy to report back on on how we do 
and to just help people kind of create the experience that we want. Because you can have an experience up there where you just camp with your bows in a U-Haul van and just hunt off the road and road hunt and burn a whole bunch of fuel, but like have a great time. You really have a great time. Or maybe you want to hike in 10 miles and, and hike out or hike in 10 miles and float out. Like, there's a way for people to do it and to make Alaska suddenly become just so doable and affordable. So hmm. uh, I feel like I can, I can do a good thing and make an impact and well, it's fun. Yeah, so, how hard how hard is five miles in the tundra, right? Like to get to rifle range. So you you can't bow hunt within five miles, or sorry, you can't rifle hunt within five miles of the road, right? right. So like, Correct. how how many people are doing that? How many people are actually going there and hiking five miles? Plus? I, I don't know how many people are doing it, but let me tell you, people are doing it. That's mm -hmm. all I can really say. Uh, Nobody has been able to define what a tussock is like to really just de describe the land. It is little, it's soft and irregular. And there's something that we just, you just don't have in the lower 48. A tussock is not something that exists in the West, the East, the North or the South, but mm -hmm. most people come from the West if they're kind of a backcountry hunter and a tussock doesn't exist. It's North to alders, which exists in the rest of Alaska. The tussock but, is like an extreme version of what I call alpine bunch grass, which is grass that has been somewhat had water from snowmelt run around it, and it creates almost like little islands that are raised up above, and then it's kind of muddy, swampy underneath. But they're like here, there may be two or three inches of difference, kind of swampy or whatever, where yeah. the ones I've seen, it's like the little islands are like a foot high. Uh -huh. And and the channels are substantially further. I mean, they, they feel like they can be real, real ankle breakers or, or something, you know. It's just real uneven. It's real uneven. And it's, it's not firm ground between them it's soft ground to speed between them despite and it's soft ground on top of them so the kind of common question that's like it's a question from somebody who's done it before but maybe is not an expert like he hasn't done it enough that they're just familiar it's like are you do you walk on top of them or between them and it's like i know that you've done it but i know that you haven't done it a whole bunch mm -hmm. uh there's no there's no way there's no way whether you walk between them or on top of them. Like, it's spongy either way. You just walk across it. You just take – it's like a life lesson. You just take the best footing you're given that particular step. You know, one step at a time you go. And then when you get real savvy, you find places where there's just less tussocks to walk on. And it's waterways, channels, ridges, creek beds. Like you, Or you bow hunt so you don't have to go through it all. Or you just do it. It's brutal, but it's it's doable. The thing I was just talking with a friend just just before you guys uh, set this up, and we were talking about walking through alders in Alaska. And uh, I mean, for most people, alders would be like walking through two thousand, climbing two thousand feet of willows, just just pure snarling trees. And like she was talking about how her friend they went on a training hike or a scouting mission, but also they were trying to find his gun. 
<laughs> he lost his gun packing his sheep out last year and i was like oh god that sounds terrible and like the alders literally will like they'll take anything that isn't tied down tight and they'll take your soul and like like tussocks at least won't like steal the arrows out of your quiver and steal your gun they'll just they'll just fight you for every step it's like you're mm. tough to do it. it it takes what looks like easy terrain you're like oh that's nice and flat and turns it into much more challenging. Oh, yeah. It just makes you 400 yards, and you're just sweating and thinking, like, okay, I got to layer down. <laughs> I brought too much stuff. <laughs> the best way to make your pack less than, you know, the weight that you actually want it is to just walk across 100 yards of tussocks. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So – we're really getting into this, and I, and I, I I like that. Like I said, I'm I'm happy to serve people with this. It's certainly a hunt that I feel like it gets people to Alaska, and and not only that, it does that in a way that doesn't break your bank. So if if you want to come to Alaska and what you really want to do is moose hunt or grizz, you know, brown bear hunt or something like, I I think it's pretty sound advice that I've thought of to recommend people like just. Don't think that you only get one trip because there's a really budgeted way to get a first trip that just lets you experience it, learn how to navigate it, learn what to expect. And then from there, you can keep saving and plan for your real trip. And if you spend $2,000 to come and do a caribou hunt on the Hall Road, you might find that you save that much money on your next trip because you're just that much more familiar with everything and you get more value out of it. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think of that? Total BS? No, no. I mean, I did a trip up there for, although my trip was not common, and I did it with Barry Whitehill and Hal Herring. Yep. Um, you know Barry? No, I know of Barry. He's the uh, the chapter president for uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers up here. Yeah, and he used to be the one person who I believe was head of the Arctic National Wildlife Area refuge, okay. right? Basically managed the refuge. And Barry knows that area very well. Um, when we were driving up, he's like, oh, I put in at this river. I came out in three weeks down here doing a bird survey or whatever, right? He knows most of the elders. He knows a lot of the native cultural sites because there are a lot of native cultural sites still on the North Slope as well. Um, and I think I did that trip for maybe like a thousand bucks. No, wait, it was probably 1,200. It was about 400 for caribou tags, 600 for flying, and then like, couple hundred bucks for a split of the split of food and gas to get up there and for the trip. And we didn't eat anything super fancy. It was sausage and mashed dried mashed potatoes and some stuff like yeah. that, you know? So, I mean, gas is more expensive. I think about gas and food and people budget that in, but like you spend that much money every day. So when you're budgeting that, you should just budget that gas is going to be a cup two dollars more a gallon so you, you budget that money over your normal day and food yeah you can fly that up or you know well, you, you can buy it in fairbanks i mean it'll be a, probably a little bit. what's that 
you can buy it in Fairbanks. I mean, it's not like yeah. Fairbanks is a remote outpost. It's similar in size to Grand Junction, has a sportsman's warehouse and all yeah. that stuff. So, yeah. So there are, yeah, there are some things that are more expensive, but like the biggest thing is like it's both an amazing hunt and a great vacation. So like, I want more people to come up here. And I like I say, like, I, I feel like the Hall Road is a great introduction because it's like the, the gates. You, you come up and just do one hunt and you'll see that the rest of them aren't maybe aren't that intimidating. Or maybe you just don't want it. You've done one and you're, your skin in the game is only 2000 bucks, And you're like, you know, I, I am quite happy with my mule deer and antelope and elk in the West. Thank you very much. But I know that now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well... The Sag isn't a little river either. Um, it's a it it can get pretty ripping. At least that was the experience when I was on it. Yeah, no, totally true. It's uh, I didn't. I the difference being um, what kind of river it is. Me growing up in in Minnesota. Uh, interesting fact, I grew up in the only county in Minnesota that doesn't have a lake. Um, we had rivers and trout streams and creeks and whatever else. and um, But they all behave the same. And it's so it's weird to give rivers behaviors. But there are differences between glacier rivers and, and clearwater rivers and uh, runoff and streams and whatever else. And so the, these rivers are all glacier rivers. So they're, they're braided. They have meandering channels. And they go up and down real fast, and uh, so yeah, they they can be quite quite swift. Uh, we actually, the last time I went up there, um, we uh, we harvested a bear right as and, and as we shot it, the rain started to fall, and like harvesting that bear was like this sheep hunt we were doing fell 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 through because we got eight inches of snow. So our dull sheep hunt fell. We hike back to camp. We get back to camp. We see these bears, and we're like, let's pivot. Let's go shoot a bear. So we go shoot this bear, and as we start skinning it, the rain starts to fall, and it just becomes comical how shitty the weather is. Sorry if this is not rated as explicit. But, like, I use that for pointedness. Like, it got cold, wet, and miserable. So we skin this bear. We go back. We climb into the tent. And, like, we just laugh for, like, 24 hours about how terrible the weather is outside. And on the backside of the storm, we sleep off our, our hangovers from our celebratory whiskey. And on the backside of the storm, it's, like, sunny and nice. And, and we're hanging outside, looking at it. We're like, wow, all you need to do is just, like, be prepared to spend a day in the tent or two days in the tent. And, like, it'll be nice again. And I, I saw this rivulet of water flowing, and I was like, there, there wasn't water running through that, <laughs> that, that little channel yesterday. I hope our boat is still here. And our boat was not still there. <laughs> oh. Our boat, our boat was somewhere downstream. Like it had come up that high, that fast. And we're like, oh God, this is bad, bad news. So like, we we packed up as if we were gonna hike. 20 miles out because I, I didn't know if my boat was going to be on its way to the Arctic, Arctic ocean. 
Unfortunately, hmm. we found it hung up about a, two miles downstream, but that just goes to show like the temperament of them goes up and down real fast. And like my river in Minnesota, like takes a day or two to swell, stays swollen for a week, and then and then comes back down and clears up. So that that was new for me. That that was a whole knowledge base in addition to wood and terminology and whatever else that I had to learn when I moved up here. It also looks like our uh, our podcast is turning into mistakes of the river. If we go back through Ben Brochu and mm -hmm. some of the other ones. Really? This is a common theme, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you should hear about the Wood River expedition. Um, that was high adventure. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was used as educational material for one of the pack rafting, uh, um, you know, they have that yearly pack rafting rondi or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it was the education for safety and perhaps what not to do. And mm -hmm. uh, at one point, Ben was probably more than a little concerned that he might have more than lost his partner, as in couldn't find him, but might have lost his partner on the trip. Oh, geez. Oh, sure. And, uh, lost his partner, but then also lost his partner's boat for like four days, right? They didn't find it for, they didn't find another, so they had two guys in one boat essentially for like four days hiking Yeah, before, the, they, before they found the other dude's boat. The gorge was so steep that it took them, what, like all day to make like a half mile of headway one, one day. Mm -hmm. oh. It was supposed to be like a five-day trip or something. It turned into... 12 and they, they had to, they made an oar out of like a stick mm -hmm. and an old like bucket that they found mm -hmm. because they didn't have an oar either. That's a, yeah. uh, that's a no good, very bad day. Uh, yeah. Wow. yeah in, the, in the, in the, um, yeah, just, just not finding a boat for four days and then like coming upon them, their boat, right? Like, yeah, it's a, it's a good story, but. People seem to have troubles with rivers every time we talk to them. So. <laughs> no, maybe maybe we're a bad open. Yeah. Man, like, I think people don't recognize, maybe, I'm just thinking of this now, like, maybe people don't recognize rivers as having, being the same facet of Mother Nature's toolkit as weather. It's like, we, we respect weather, right? Like, this is, I mean, Seek Outside being a prime example, like, the TP tent is the tent that respects all weather, but because it, it's designed to endure all weather because of its shape. Uh, and, and, and in that, I mean, the rafting community, me is like, I love it because I like a floorless tent because I'm, I've got a whole bunch of water usually because I've been rafting and I like the mm. because I've got stuff, but I've also can carry you know, a little bit bigger things because I'm putting it in a boat. I'm not carrying it on my back, but like you got to respect the river as being as temperamental as the wind or the rain or the, the storm, whatever it, it so might be uh, as determining the fate of your trip is the rivers. Maybe more so if you're utilizing the river, the river probably has a bigger fate on your trip than the weather in Alaska. Really? You can't cross it. Can't float it because there's too little water or too much water in it. Both of those are real situations. Hmm. Uh, 
interesting. This is something I'm going to have to divulge, uh, like dive dive farther into on my my further thoughts and writing. It'll it'll give you something to read about when you get tired of reading about wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, someday, huh? <laughs> when you finish rereading Norwegian Wood for the fifth time, then you can move on. Here's the thing about that book, Dennis, is <laughs> I don't have it in my possession because it has become the book that I loan to people. Really? Yeah, if yeah. I had it in my possession, I would send it to you or Kevin and say, like, here, here's the book. Read it. Enjoy it. Make an inscription. Send it on to somebody you think would appreciate it. Pass it on. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know right. if you have the other book. That's that. There's a book like that called One Man's Wilderness. It's the story of Dick Prenicky. It's a PDF oh, yeah, that's a cool book. And I, I own two copies of that book now. One I just bought to keep for myself, and the other I send. I send to people when I meet them. Like, this book changed my life. It's the reason I'm here. It's the reason I'm in this yurt. Like, read it. Enjoy it. I think it's perfect for you. I don't I don't push it on anybody, but if I feel like they're a good fit for it, I send it to them. And Norwegian Wood has become the same kind of book for me. Huh. Yeah. So One Man's Wilderness, did you read that before you moved to Alaska? Was it did it help with that? Or did you read it like in Alaska, like no. kind of confirming what you did, you know, your choice? Um it's a uh it's a PBS documentary that I first watched when I was in my like a young teenager. Uh, I call it one of my Sunday spoilers. It was one of those things where like when you, you wake up on a weekend mm-hmm. and you're just like slow to get going and you flip through TV and like that show was on. It was like cancel my day. Like this is this is what I'm watching. <laughs> this documentary mm-hmm. about this guy who goes into the Alaska wilderness and, and builds his own cabin and builds the handles for all his tools and does it all the hard way and lives off the land like. It is so captivating for me that I, I like it. It drove me to create something like that in my life. So it it found me way before I found Alaska, and it it led me to Alaska. It's kind of been my compass. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good read. It's a good watch. It's very simple uh, I, anybody with a good alaska dream I, I i highly recommend it so when your buddy was say when your buddy told you that you needed a year you were like oh yeah I, I could do that let's do it yeah i can build that quicker than i can build a cabin that's what it was mm. <laughs> so, so i uh i built a the platform for the year it is ha- is a is a is tied into trees so it's, it's half a tree fort with a with a yurt on top of it so huh. it, it it appeals to my little like young kid like robin hood hangs out with robinson crusoe hangs mm. out with the last of the mohicans and they like create this yurt in alaska and go hunting together that's that's kind of my life i was really obsessed with all those like adventure stories yeah awesome, that, that's my character i'm I am the the character of an adventure story because I read them all. Awesome, awesome. Well, Norwegian Wood is definitely going on my list. So I'll track it down. I'll I'll give you an update sometime. Yeah, you might have to find a uh, Husqvarna chainsaw dealer to, <laughs> to track it down. 
Oh, this has been fun. Did did we ever actually get to anything you guys wanted to talk about? Sure. <laughs> I think it was pretty open ended. Yeah. No, I thought it was great. Um. Yeah. No. I, I I thought it was great. You know. Um. I'll. The the Hall Road fascinates me now, so I'll be looking into that for sure. Um. I I think that's a. You know, from a, a budget Alaska hunt. You know, that makes a lot of sense. And do you think more people, so obviously more people bow hunt it, right? Like that would just be, that would just make sense because you can, you can hunt off the road essentially. Yeah. And to, to bow hunt it, you need a certified bow hunter education course. So that's fine. Go get one. It's, it ain't going to, it's going to take a day of your time and it's going to serve you well and open up Mm -hmm. some opportunities that that's the caveat. Is you need that to be able to bow hunt there. What is uh, the yeah, uh, what, a lot what, of people bow hunt it? What do they teach you in that certified bow hunter course that would be different than what you would learn in the lower forty-eight? Oh, you, you, whatever one you would take in the lower forty-eight, as long as it's uh, IBEF International Bow Hunter Education, uh, whatever. Make up some names. Sure. For, yeah, <laughs> some acronym. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whatever they teach you in that, like any, any is it, as long as your course is accredited by that body, it's it's fine. So you can you can take it in your home state and it's valid up here because ours was no different. It's a bunch of cartoon drawings that tell you not to shoot at a deer that's obstructed by brush, not to shoot at a deer that's stock, skyline, to to know your distance, to make sure your equipment is you know, sharp and well-tuned and to aim for the heart and the lungs. It's, it's that kind of stuff. And then there's a, but the big thing is there's a proficiency course is to make sure that you're proficient with the bow. Here's the thing. You're going to come up here and it's going to be like antelope hunting. You're going to want to say, I shoot at targets at 90 yards and I hit them all the time. This animal's at 90 yards. I'm going to shoot it. Please don't do that. What your fixed target can never simulate is an animal's reaction or your reaction to the animal. And uh, animals move, the wind change. Like you can't, your, your target back home can't simulate an Alaskan wind. It can't simulate the expanse of like you ranged it at 70 yards and you're comfortable, but it, it moves a little bit. And now you think it just moved 10 yards, but like you've never hunted on the tundra before. You don't know what three yards and 25 yards really look like to just try to like compensate by aiming high. So like I just ask people, the, as I do with no matter what you're hunting, like the farthest you can shoot at the range is not the farthest you should be shooting at animals. Um, the land will challenge you. So get really good at belly crawling. <laughs> yeah, get really in the tussocks. Good at that, that doesn't sound fun. Belly crawling in the tussocks. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, no. Do you just uh, want a rubber suit for that? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a great topic. Like your rain gear is imperative. Uh, mm. Man. 
this you didn't know this about me but remember when i told you kevin that like i i like to like i i know the guy at kuyu who designs kuyu gear and like i i help him test gear mm-hmm. or like i, I just like i want to test gear it's because i get the science of gear but i also like understand science and application and one one of the things that happens in alaska is people bring breathable membranes here and they think because they're just having they just haven't been exposed. They've only been exposed to the marketing of it. They think like, oh, this gear is waterproof and breathable. It's the best of both worlds. Awesome. But but breathable rain gear requires a concept, which is a, a heat gradient. You have to be able to generate enough heat at your core to push the water outward. So basically, you have to you have to repel it. You have to say like, screw you i'm too hot you go that way and that is away from my body through this breathable membrane to the outside so if you get into conditions that are 45 50 degrees soggy wet never hot 100 humidity you lose that gradient and basically everything on the outside cools your inside and it and that that breathable membrane suddenly says, listen, I'm just a gate to, to force water whichever way it tells me it's supposed to go. And, and I don't know which way it's supposed to go. That's kind of a weird analogy, but like all to say, like breathable membranes can fail in conditions that are so cold and wet that your body can't force the water away from you. Uh, it kind of requires my hands to show you what's going on. So anyways, you might find yourself crawling across Tundra and saying, like, my brand new Gore-Tex, you know, breathable gear failed. Well, it, it's probably nothing wrong with the product. It prob- you probably just asked it to do something it cannot do because the conditions suck. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so just don't be afraid to just bring rubber like rubber doesn't require gimmick rather rubber is not a gate it's just a barrier it just says water you stay on that side or this side whatever side but like you're not getting to the other side through me i'm rubber i'm tough extra Uh, tough boots and a rubber suit yeah so like rubber rubber pants are not not foolish to wear they like or you have to really make sure that you understand how breathable membranes work that you take great care of them that they're clean that they're the dwr is working so that when you get out of crawling through the tussocks chasing after your animal and you start walking around and generating heat that your membrane can be the gate that lets the water out but not back in Mm. would you do neoprene waders no too hot too hot too hot if i i mean it no too hot uh, breathable chest waders are fine for whatever you would have to do if you're crossing the river or or floating out. But neoprene is is overkill. Too hot, too heavy. Yeah. This is this is the thing. These are just things you don't think about. So so I'm I'm wondering. So do you take um that I'm gonna forget? Kevin just said it. The tough wear or the tough. Extra tough boots. Extra tough boots and and or like pants. Like is that is that a staple in your kit when you go out? Um, as much as I want to be the guru of all things Paul Road, 
I am on a an an ever and never ending quest to find the best footwear. And this may this is totally contradictory to the outdoor industry, which our entities are a part of, and we all gotta love each other, but I, for many of my hunts, no longer use hunting boots because what I find is that waterproof or something breathable or Gore-Tex or whatever fails. And what happens is your boots end up becoming water buckets. So like a, a leather boot, leather is technically breathable, but it it takes a lot of energy to drive water through skin, you know, through mm -hmm. hide. It can happen. It just doesn't happen fast. And I found that I would walk in leather boots and there'd be a seam seal break or too much water. You take water over the top and, and your boot becomes a bucket. And you're trying to empty the bucket through the membrane. It, it, it just doesn't work. And then I started realizing, like, I'm literally just carrying around pounds on my feet. Asking it to do something it cannot do. And I, as I've progressed every year, I try something different. I, I kind of take what works and I try something different on top of it. And I'm to the point now where I wear, and I caution promoting the name because I don't think they really promote hunting because they're real greenies, but like the product is exactly what I needed to do. So like, I got to try to find some way to get them at the table and talk about this. But like I wear Vivo barefoot shoes. They're a, a minimalist running shoe. They're made of recycled water bottles mm -hmm. and like Michelin rubber. You know what I found worked best? Cause I, I had my boots fail up yeah. there as well. Um, in the tussocks eventually, my boots wouldn't stay dry. Mm -hmm. I ended up wearing neoprene socks and Tevas, just sandals. Yeah. And totally. I, I, my feet were warmer in that combo than they were in my La Sportiva boots, which yeah. wetted out. Totally. And what you found was that your feet weighed the same every step, no matter what the conditions were. Because your footwear never held the water, right? Or how mad it was, it just it the water drained out. Your feet pushed it out, and so your your footwear was the same every step. And then what, what like one of the psychological things of it is, is you never have this point during the week where you're like you're trying to stalk an animal, and you're like, I need to cross that water, but I know that my boots are on the verge of failure and I don't want to do it because I don't want wet feet or I'll never get them dry. It eliminates that. Like your feet will operate the same day one as the end of the week. Like you just, they get wet and they dry out and they weigh the same the whole way. So your feet just, just become this constant and, and all it just takes is some dry socks to change into and down booties. You just put on down booties when your feet are cold or when you're not walking, you just slide on down booties. And then instead of carrying one pound of, of Vibram rubber on your foot all day long, all day long, which I mean, the physics will tell you, it's like tons, tons that you're carrying over the course of the day. You just carry like 
four ounces of down in your backpack. And when you need warmth, you, you just slide it on. So you're wearing the Vivo barefoot shoes. That's what I wear. That's what I wear hunting. Yeah. Anyway, what, what kind of, what temperature range? Oh, all the way. Huh? I wear, I wear, like he was talking to Kevin mentioned, um, I wear like Gore-Tex socks. Okay. Or like a neoprene sock or whatever. I just, Mine's a Gore-Tex sock. It's supposed to breathe. But again, on the concept of how it works, it can't do that because you're loading it with mud every step. Like It doesn't really breathe, but yeah, it doesn't yeah. hold water and it keeps you warm. And so I wear Gore-Tex socks, barefoot shoes that they don't have any foam or any – they don't have anything absorbent in them. That's the key. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they, can't, they can't hold water. There's nothing that holds – that absorbs water in their making, which is the key. So they're always wear the same weight. They're always are the same weight. Um, and then I carry dry down booties and dry socks in my backpack. And I mean, I can put the shoes on in like 10 seconds. So over a boot, over a backpacking boot that you got to lace and tie, and it creates this aversion to changing them, it creates an aversion to changing your socks because I just don't want to friggin' unlace my gator and then unlace my boot and then retie it and my laces are soggy, so they're probably gonna rip and I'm afraid of breaking them. So I'm just I'm just gonna leave my boot on and just deal with it. I don't mm -hmm. do that. Uh, these shoes, I, I just grab them by the little loop on the heel and like pop them on. And mm -hmm. I go walking, and when I want to rest in glass, I pop them off and put on my down booties, and I always keep my down booties dry. And these boots always weigh my shoes always weigh the same thing. So this is what I do. Worse for me, but yeah, yeah. I mean, that's aggressive. I've challenged. I've challenged the status quo, which is the hunting boot. Right. I. I so true story. Not Alaska based, but I went on a spring backpacking trip with a lot of elevation gain. So mm -hmm. I started out in like cedars, headed up in several feet of snow. Um, there was a creek crossing that I didn't quite make all the way uh, on my jump. Uh, I guess I'm not quite as good jumping as I used to be. Um, so my feet, one foot got really wet. It was in a waterproof boot though. But then after a few miles, I got in the snow, the snow got deeper, deeper. I started post holing and yeah. it was, you know, I, my foot was numb. I lost feeling in my foot. Um, cause I had my backpacking gear. I took my, uh, I sat down like on a log. I just, took my shoe, my boot off, and then I pulled my sleeping bag or quilt or whatever it was I had at the time, put my foot in that and just started rubbing real hard. And I got the feeling back in yeah. that relatively quickly, which was kind of the same thing. I mean, it was like when you get cold when you're in a boot, like when something goes south, like I didn't make the creek crossing, right? So I had yeah. cold snow melt water, then exasperated by maybe an hour later, post-holing in the snow, you know, the next thing you know, all of a sudden you're like losing feeling in your feet and you're like, whoa, I'm clubfoot on this, on this foot. I could, I could end up with some frostbite or something. So. Yeah. And God, I, you talk about it. I talked about the Dick Prennicky one man's wilderness spoiling so many Sundays. Like we all know Forrest Gump has, has changed so many of our afternoon plans, but Lieutenant Dan says in that movie, like, you got to take care of your feet. Every time you stop, you change your socks. <laughs> but it's real. It's like, it's real advice. 
and it works. Like you just keep multiple pairs of socks. And just what I found is, is if my mentality of how I approach gear is everything should have multiple functions and you should use it the most efficient way. So like you can carry 10 pounds on your feet in order to have a boot that never gets wet and never lets your feet get cold and yada, yada, yada. But when you move 10 pounds or a three pound boot, if I'm six feet tall, I've got 36 inches of leg. Like when you understand physics, you move it that far from the fulcrum. It takes a lot of energy to move that boot. But if you carry all the functions that you want, like warmth when I want to be warm and dry when I want to be dry, and you break them into their components and you put them on your back, you don't get the distance multipliers from your fulcrum. So like three pounds on your foot equals three times three, like nine pounds with every step or something. But three pounds on your back equals just three pounds. So uh, it, it's fulcrums and levers. It's just, it's, hmm. it's simple tools, but it's science that's irrefutable. So, man, thanks for letting me geek out, guys. We really, we're going <laughs> for it here. I want to I want to ask just a, a few clarifying questions for myself, right? Like, so Vivo barefoot shoes, they're like toe shoes, correct? They're not toe shoes, um, but they're, they're the same concept. They're a minimal. Okay. Yep. Okay. So you don't yep. have toes, which is why you can stick socks in them, change socks, yep. get Correct. them on and off, get, yep. them, get them on and off fast. Because in my experience with like the toe shoes, those aren't a fast thing. Nope. Okay. So, that makes so they let you use all your toes concentrically. So you can still like rock climb with them because they lock your toe. Yep. Hit. Sure. Sure. Hit. Okay. Cool. And then um, I guess that just clarifies the Gore-Tex. I was, I was wondering, I was like, wait, did you get Gore-Tex socks that have toes? Like toe, yeah. Uh, but no, no, you just have socks. Okay. Yep. Um. Okay. Vivo barefoot shoes, Gore-Tex socks, and down booties. That's your. That's my recipe. That's my recipe. That's your modular system for your feet. That's my modular system. Yeah, my down booties. Instead of carrying around a warm boot all day long, to instead of carrying around, I used to wear a four hundred grain mountain boot, and that boot weighs two and a half pounds or something, right? I mean, it's it's mm. heavy. Instead of carrying it around all the time so that when I wasn't walking, I was warm, I just, like, I take that insulation, and instead of making it vulnerable to soaking up water while I'm walking, I just put it in the security of my backpack. I wish you guys could see my hands as I'm doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so animated. Well, like, I just take that insulation, and I put it in the security of my backpack, and I only take it out when it's needed. And when it's needed, I make sure it doesn't absorb any water. Mm-hmm. and then and then all you're left with is just the tread you need without all the other bullshit attached to it instead of making like a multi-tool that does it tries to does everything and doesn't do anything well you just like break it down into individual components that like do what they need to do really well and you want to know the cool thing is is when you get rid of a big heavy mountain boot and you just wear a barefoot shoe you can stalk animals way more quietly way more efficiently you know when you try to do like the fox walk where you're you're slow stalking bow hunting and you have three pounds on each foot it's Mm. really hard to like lift that foot up hold it off the ground 
slowly put it forward, put the heel down first, roll it down, feel if there's a twig underneath it. Like you can't feel with this rigid Vibram sole. And you put it down, and then your legs just get tired because you've never trained to do that. And you make a whole bunch of mess just like stomping, stomping through the brush and the leaves. But when you wear a barefoot shoe and you only have three ounces on your feet, you, you mean it's like wearing a, a Native American's moccasin. Like it's quiet. It has a very small footprint, so you're just crunching fewer leaves, and you can feel them better. You can place your foot much more precisely, so you can find that little patch of dirt and put it there instead of on the twig or the leaves. And it just it just makes your feet and your ankles and your legs more nimble for stalking animals. You can literally like dance through the tussocks. You can dance. I've been known to dance. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to feel that on this episode, but I'm, I'm, a guru. I'm also known as the uh, the tundra dancer. <laughs> Dancing for caribou. Yeah. Where that shit works. <laughs> tundra dancer, the name of the podcast episode. Yeah. <laughs> Um, do you have any favorite down booties? No, whatever's free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I have, I have, I had a friend who was a, uh, a mountaineering guy for a long time. He gave me a couple pairs of North faced booties that have a good solid foot to the bottom of them. So those work. I have some Wiggies booties, which are lamellite. So they're, they're <laughs> warm and wet. Like I'll wear those. And sometimes I just like I always have Crocs with me, and I just just slip on Crocs. Most of mm -hmm. what you need to do is just keep your feet off the ground. I mean, so you guys get this with 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 a teepee tent and an open floor design. Um, people freak out that there's no floor, right? Oh yeah, so I bet that's got to yeah. be one of the main questions, right? Mm -hmm. All the time, all the time, all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the can't wrap their head around it at all. Can't like, wrap their head around it. You're totally blowing my mind. No floor. And I mean, I've had this conversation with a bunch of people and I'm like, they're like, what is it like? And I'm like, you know, you're hiking up a hill and you set down on the ground and set your pack down and lean back against a tree and you just kind of doze off. It's kind of like that, except you have a tent over you. <laughs> Yeah. Have you ever had one of those real deep conversations with a friend who are sitting in your yard and you just start picking at the four leaf clovers right right there in front of you as he's talking and you're thinking and you're just picking the grass and like picking the petals off the dandelion? Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. Only like not getting rained on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean that's really the same concept with the boot, is like that floor of your tent is great until it starts holding the moisture in and then you're just like you're in your tent and you're dry from the outside but the moisture you brought in is making you wet oh Damn. yeah i had a tent and uh i i have some bad experiences with floors so i can give you the reasons why not to have a floor um yeah. owen my son um we were on a family camping trip um where we went to we did um, Buckskin Gulch, some hiking around that area. And then we went to Zion 
And a friend of mine, Bill, um, had the flu. We called it Billsy's Funksies. And everyone kind of got it during the trip. And at two in the morning, Owen woke up in the tent and barfed. Oh, it's not good. Man, I would, if the best thing I could have done there was if I had scissors or something, just cut the floor out. <laughs> You know, <laughs> and stay, it was like a freestanding tent. Just take it, move it over a bit, leave the floor right. spot. You're like, we'll deal with it in the morning. You know, <laughs> that's I get that story because I know the world of no floors and whatever else. And like, I've been on both sides of it, I can feel it. I hope other people, I'm not telling you, like, you want to know what it's like. Just, you know, eat some Thai food, have a rough time or something. But but just, like, understand what you need things to do. Um, hmm. what, Dennis, what did you ask me that made me think about no floors? and? Um, I asked you, your favorite brand of down booties, I think. Yeah, down <laughs> booties. And I was talking about Crocs. And, mm -hmm. and really what what I've learned about hunting Alaska is how to optimize. My brain is the best tool that I have to harvest an animal. And the things that I wear, sleep in, whatever, are, are my protection against the elements to keep my brain at its highest function. So I've learned how to leverage the abilities of all the fabrics that exist in this hunter's realm to keep my brain optimal, opti like running fine. And, and so keeping your brain running fine means ultimately staying at this higher level of thinking, which means you got to take care of your body. Like that's what, you know, Heather Kelly, Heather's Choice Food is like, this is actually good nutrition to let your body recover. Because once your body recovers, it'll start refeeding your brain and you'll have this high level of cognition to develop advanced strategy. And like, this is how humans go from being animals to being humans, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so, so like Crocs to digress, but bring it forward are like this amazing barrier between me and the earth. They don't let the cold and the wet transfer up into my body. They don't absorb the cold and hold it. Like the croc weighs the same thing when you start as when you end the trip. Maybe mm. a little less because you wore them so much and you wore them down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I just wear crocs and I know that if I move enough, like my socks will dry out and I'll just get rid of the wet socks, put a dry sock on and it'll be warm. So like the no different than wearing a croc on my foot. The other item of gear that I carry with me all the time and that sounds a little bit like hyperbole, but it's pretty much true. I, I don't let myself leave without a a fold of closed cell foam. The Thermarest Z Light pads, yeah, they mm. don't give you good like good mattressy feel when you sleep at night. But that's that's beside the point. They can never ever fail. It's inherent in what they do that they're water barrier. And a and there go a an air barrier. So 
anytime I sit down, when I kneel down, when I sleep at night, I always put closed cell foam against beneath me and the earth. And that keeps the earth, the cold, like the cold water of the earth, the moisture of the ground, the cold, wet air, like it, that closed cell foam, that Z light thermorest foam is this barrier between me and the earth, which means I only have to be warm enough to heat the foam, not heat this whole globe of air around me, which lets my brain be normal, like mm-hmm. keep equilibrium and think. I'm not cold. I'm not wet. I'm not miserable. I can think. I have mm-hmm. the ability to think. So, I mean, you guys want to talk about tents. Like, I'm, we're right there. It's like so much of my tenets of how to have a successful Alaska trip is just keep your head in the game by being normal thermic, by being dry, by being warm, by being hydrated, by having calories. And that just means like, keep leverage your tools to keep the elements away from your body and like the tp10 changed my life it was fantastic mm-hmm. like I, I didn't know about them when i was a western hunter and then one or two hunting seasons in alaska i learned about the tp10 and i in the wood stove and i was like this is a freaking game changer <laughs> every day when i wake up i am dry I'm comfortable. I can stand up and stretch out so like I can get my body engaged. I'm not cramped up and feeling like feeling grumpy because I'm I'm I hurt because I'm like inclined to stay in the fetal position because that's how I had to sleep, right? You have to toss yourself out of your tent. Yeah, like I my clothes are dry, I'm warm, I cooked food in the wood stove, like no matter what the weather's doing outside, I can stay in here and be protected and like my head is in the game. And that is like, how many hunts have you seen that follow the cliche, like, sure enough, as luck would have it, once you know, on the last afternoon of the last day, we found an animal and killed it. You got to f- make your system let you hunt every minute that you have allotted. And if you do that, it's just pure statistics say that you're more likely to be successful. Hmm. And so, so much of my hunting success and, and what I teach is just like keeping your system in the game so that like when the weather is good, when the animals are there, when, when you start hunting moose and it's the 15th of the month and they're kind of in pre-rut and you end on the 25th and they're really rutting, like you still want to hunt because every day has been fun because you've been dry and warm and fed. Like that's that's the ticket that's a that's a huge key to your success and like hunting tactics and animal behavior like that's all just style points on top of just keeping yourself in the game Whew. heck yeah juicy yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i'm sure i'm sure we could keep going for forever we'll have to do this again since seeing how we met like well 10 minutes ago uh, before we started this thing. So uh, nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> where, uh, where can people find more about kind of what you do? Maybe, maybe check out some pictures of you and your uh, Vivo shoes or something, you know, um, how, how can people track you down? Uh, Alaskan Odysseys is my universal handle. 
So that's Instagram. There's a website under operating under that right now. There's a great story of how Heather Kelly actually owns that handle. <laughs> that's on the podcast, on my podcast with Heather. Okay. Um, the lovely, beloved, hilarious, sassy Heather Kelly. But Alaskan Odysseys is where I, I centralize everything. I write for Western 100 Magazine. So you can see some of my stuff from the last year uh, in the survival issue, in the thrive issue, in the gear issue. And upcoming is the controversy issue, which I, I wrote a piece I really like. And, and it kind of covers these uh, more so than like recommendations or tenets or principles like the principle of how to use controversy to make yourself a better person and hunter I, I cover in that article western hunter is a great way to find me okay just follow me on instagram and then message me and we'll have a chat and come to alaska careful, careful what you wish for yeah <laughs> yeah you're gonna you're gonna go you're gonna be like what happened to me a few years ago where um all of a sudden i went to my lonely hunting spot and there was like 30 people there i was like ooh, maybe i shouldn't talk about places i like i know <laughs> i think about that often it's it's a real thing but uh the guide that i'm working for this year is my first fall actually guiding for the last 10 years i've just hunted with my friends and brought people up and hunted and this year because of covid um my plans changing his needs changing I'm going to do some guiding for the month of September um, and, and just it's going to be good for my mind and my knowledge base. And I think some hunters, are, I hope some hunters are going to have some real good thorough experiences. But um, where was I going with that? <laughs> inviting never inviting us to stay with yeah, you. Yeah, I'm yeah. wondering how many bunks we how many bunks you got in that uh, year there. This, this guide, uh, I've I've done walk in hunting near his area and. And as mad as he could have been, he's like, no, listen, man, this is public land. Like, I, I believe that we all own this land. We all nurture it. We all take care of it. And, and so you guys have just as much right to it as me. And as long as you respect it and take care of it. And so I feel like it, as long as I can teach people how to use that land and respect it and, and do it in a way that preserves that opportunity and preserves wild lands for people, it's it'd be real selfish for me not to share it uh, so I, I feel better about about giving people that opportunity and also let's be serious i have other spots that, <laughs> that people won't won't find out about <laughs> true yeah so i want people to come i want people to do the hall road i want to learn everything there's about it i want to share that because after that you'll just you'll know how to plan your own hunt You'll know how to plan your own adventure, and uh, we'll all take care of this earth together. Cool, Sweet. man. Perfect. Perfect. Well, um, I got to say thanks, man. Thanks for coming on, and thanks for thanks for doing this. And uh, I'm sure there's some nuggets in there for everybody. And, yeah, yeah I hope, ho hopefully we get to do it again. <laughs> thanks, Ed Gein. Everybody remember to go find out who Ed Gein is. That's, that's the, that's the more moral of the story. All right. Well, thanks, All right. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, man. Pleasure. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Real quick before you go, I just wanted to say thanks for listening. And if you've been enjoying our conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, 
please email podcasts at seekoutside.com. Thanks and have a great day.